and welcome to episode 68 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon. I am uh, joined by a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Dan Okrant. He is the founder of Rotisserie Baseball, the first public editor of the New York Times, prominently featured in Ken Burns' baseball documentary, and the author of numerous books relating to baseball and not. His latest work is The Guarded Gate, Bigotry, Eugenics, and the Law that Kept Two Generations of Jews, Italians, and Other European Immigrants Out of America. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for asking me, Adam. Absolutely. I was uh, happy to. I promise I don't normally make public appeals for, for people to come on the show, but uh, you were very you were very gracious in, in, in coming on, and I and, uh, appreciate your time. Uh, so let's get right into it. Um, baseball is like is full of memories and moments uh, that kind of get swept away in the uh, context of the immediate. You know, not just with with what's going on in the field, but what's going off the field, on off the field this year in particular. I think a lot about, say, like the Ken Burns documentary and and all these moments that we we may have missed in the moment, but turn out to be so much more as time goes on. I'm wondering if if you've seen anything recently where you think in 20 years, when when we're going to look back and say we really underappreciated this moment? Well, I think that there's one right now. Um, even though there was a lot of publicity ahead of time um, about Otani, his first game in 2018, I guess, mm-hmm. um, will be looked back upon a uh, hundred years from now because he is clearly on the brink of one of the most extraordinary careers in baseball history. Um, now, do we know the first game that Babe Ruth played? No, but we probably should. <laughs> uh, you know, that the, the, there are those debut moments. I guess Bob Fellers is probably maybe the best known, but um, th- this is this is because Otani's career and Otani himself, n- like nothing else in baseball history. Um, I, I take that as one. Yeah, I take that. As that's interesting because you know it, it, we're we're in an age where it feels like everything is covered within like an inch of its life. You know what I mean? With social media, Twitter, mm-hmm. everything yeah. like that, it it does make you wonder like how do you think the moment will change? You know what I mean? Like when you look at it now, we're talking about how unique it is and things like that. As time goes on, um, you know, it's not like in the fifties or the even or the sixties, even before that there wasn't this element of everyone saturating the world with all of this content. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something to consider too, right? Yeah. But, but, you know, there, there are still moments that, uh, however saturated, uh, remain, uh, indelible. Um, for me, I guess it's because I'm a Cubs fan, you know, the seventh game of the 2016 series right. is beyond memorable has been covered to an inch of its life. Uh, keeps If you follow Cubs media at all or Chicago media, it's constantly br- brought up. Um, I don't think we can get enough of moments like that. It's like the 1975 sixth game. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's like uh, Smoltz versus Morris. It's, you know, th- there are these things that, that, that stand out irrespective of the coverage that they get at the time just because they're extraordinary moments in our game's history. 
Right. And uh, part of that is when we immortalize, we choose these moments to immortalize, you know, Ken Burns, the baseball documentary, Ken Burns baseball, which is required viewing in my house uh, from and uh, it, you get to see me when I was 20, 20. Oh, my gosh. 28 years younger and 28 pounds lighter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's funny to me because, you know, as most people know, in 1994 is when a lot of the a bulk of it was done. Then the 10th inning comes back. And it, it was my uh, my daughter, who's who's she's three, like we're, we're just on in the background sometimes. And she says, uh, she says, who's that man? I was like, oh, well, that's that's Roger. That's Roger Angel. Oh, okay, he's great. Right. Okay, you're sure. Then it goes to the 10th inning. She's like, who's that man? I was like, that's the same guy. You'll learn when you're older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rod, Roger just turned 101. I know. Isn't uh, what a gift. Extraordinary. Yeah. It, yep. it's, it's, it's So the, the thing about that, that documentary in particular, I, I still believe it to be the the most comprehensive works on the history of the game, and it, it's getting on in years, right? It's it's been a, it's been a while, and of course the rumored eleventh inning, you know, it's out there. The Cubs are supposed to get one after the Cubs won, but uh, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we we've seen we've seen how it looks upon things like say Barry Bonds accomplishments and how it's aged. Um, the accepted story of Ty Cobb got some revisions uh, not some revisions, but it, it evolved over time. And you've, and you've talked about that too. Um, do you think that if there was a chance to go back and re-record an, a, a segment, a part, an inning, is there, is there one that sticks out in your mind? You know, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I haven't watched it since 1993. Oh, wow. Okay. 1994, because I would consider it too, you know, here I am watching myself on television. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll do it. You know, my grand, my granddaughter is not quite three, and maybe I'll start doing it with, with her when she's a little bit older and I've got another one on the way. But um, what stands out for me about the Burns series is the Jackie Robinson material. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it calls for revision, just in terms of Ooh, sure, know, yeah. m- moments, yeah. moments in, in this epic, the, the, the way that Ken handled that, I thought was really, you know, superb. Um, the 10th inning, I think the 10th inning should be redone because the 10th inning, not only is it now out of date, but it missed some really important stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The, the it didn't handle uh, the um, steroid scandal fully. Yeah. Um, what year was the tenth inning? Two thousand nine, I believe. Remember? Mm-hmm. Two thousand nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I you know I I think it shied away a little bit uh, from that from from both perspectives, both the perspective of those who think it was a horrible stain on the game and and the perspective of those who think, well, you know, this is what ball players do, what athletes do, they take advantage of whatever they can to get better. Um, just didn't go deep enough in that. Right. I think it, it it is kind of an impossible task in some ways, like to, to be able to cover that gargantuan a topic faithfully. And even, you know, now, you know, as time goes on, like, you know, I said, you know, as the, as people have thought more analytically about the game, I mean, I don't think people feel the same way about say Barry Bonds that they did in 2008, 2009. How, how would you characterize the difference, the way they think about them today relative to then? I think it's, I think it's gotten more pragmatic. I think it's gotten more progressive. Like the, the divorce from the, uh, the sort of character, the looming character of Barry Bonds 
uh, versus the um, uh, the accomplishments. You know, yeah. I, I think it's ultimately gone in that direction. That, that more the accomplishments are being recognized more. I think so. I don't know that it's it, and I think it's 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 a false. Uh, it's not telling the whole story if you just look at say Hall of Fame voting because a lot of the right, people right. that's that. You know, but, he, but but even the Hall of Fame, he gets a few more votes every year. Both exactly. Clemens, yeah. You know, so which is exactly to your point that. Mm-hmm you know, irrespective of whatever they did and whether you think it's cheating or not. And under the rules of baseball, it was not cheating, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that must be remembered. Um, you know, if, if you go back and read Jim Brosnan's long season, the, the first really good serious book written by a major league baseball player, you've got the Cardinals trainer giving steroids to the players <laughs> Um you know, there, there, I, there, I won't mention his name, but there's a much beloved uh, Hall of Famer uh, who had a vial of an orange liquid in his locker um, at all times, which contemporaries of his say, uh, well, of course, that was a steroid. We just didn't know they were called that at the time. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to you know, <laughs> consume this whole uh, podcast with my views of of the steroid steroid scandal, but the guilty parties were not the players. The guilty party was Major League Baseball Mm -hmm. for not having a rule and for not policing it and for sweeping it under the rug. Uh, And um, that's unforgivable. Well, and it's, and uh, unfortunately it it was seemed almost like history is repeating itself in some ways in the, with the sticky stuff and the negligence that MLB showed towards that. And now I think not on the scale of steroids, but you're going down this very familiar, those of us, you know, who remember like, you know, the Mitchell report and the randomness of it and kind of how Mm -hmm. it covered some, but not all. And there was no real, like patient zero in, in a lot of ways, you were seeing some of that today. And, um, I, uh, I, I think ultimately that's, that's what it gets down to, right? It gets down to the point of, it's so impossible to cover that, I think, in a fair, honest, comprehensive way. But I do agree. I think that there was, there was probably a better picture that could have been yeah. painted. Yeah. No, and it's also, it's always easier, as, as you suggested, Adam, that, that as we're paying more attention to the accomplishments than to the, uh, uh, to the steroid behavior it, itself, the further away we get from it, it enables us to look at it more clearly. And, yeah. you know, we're 12 years past 2009. And I'm guessing that if Ken made it now, it would be very different. Of course. Yeah. And, and that's not at all to slight Ken or anything. I mean, you do the best with what you have and in the context yeah. of yeah. what, of what you're given. I think we'll look back on things like the sign stealing scandal from the Astros. I feel like, I don't know how it will ultimately shift and move, but that's a story that could be looked at differently too. I think Well, it's already, it's already shifted. I mean, here's mm-hmm. AJ Hinch managing the major leagues right. you know, years later um, and Alex yeah, Cora <laughs> and Alex Cora, you know, um, both superb managers. Um, but the, you know, the, if that's cheating, um, the penalty was pretty small. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, Carlos Correa is going to hit free agency, and uh, it's not like he won't get paid, you know? <laughs> right, right, exactly. So um, so I want to take it back a little bit here. Um, you are, you're. I feel like sometimes you're one of those folks that, in baseball history, that if somebody looked at and said, hey, 
to, you know, uh, fantasy baseball, right? Of course it was born out of rotisserie. And I'm not going to like, you know, I've, you've talked uh, about, you're on the record about your feelings about rotisserie and all those things. But um, I wanted to ask you, one of the things that you say you're most proud of is actually a article on Bill James. And right. uh, yeah. can you tell me about, because this was in May of 1981, right? And it was it was not exactly well received right away. <laughs> I'll say, um, <laughs> no, it, but 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 just a, as a slight prelude, you know, I I I'm no longer involved in baseball as anything more than a fan. But mm-hmm. you know, I did write three writer, you know, produce three books about it and a lot of articles, and I invented this game that billions of people seem, <laughs> seem to play, but without question, guilty. What, what I'm proudest of is the fact that I. I first brought Bill James to public attention. And um, the way it happened, uh, in 1980, I pitched the piece to Sports Illustrated. They said, fine. And I went and wrote the piece. And then when it came in, the baseball fact checker, she savaged the piece, said, well, this is filled with errors. Here he says that Gene Tennis's on-base percentage was 411 when it was really 413 and so on. Not acknowledging the fact, as I had written in the piece, that Bill has had been unable to get official statistics from, from the Elias Sports Bureau and had been compiling them by hand from the daily box score. So, of course, he's going to be off a few points. But she went through it. She represented the baseball mind of the time that just wouldn't accept this kind of analysis. And then she left the magazine um, under a slight cloud, I think. And the following year, they called me, baseball editor called me up and said, we want to run the damn piece. Nice. Um, and they did. And it was received in official baseball with the exception of Chuck Tanner, who was managing the White Sox at the time, I believe, and two or three other people. It was savaged. I mean, Sparky Anderson talked about, who's paying attention to this little cross-eyed, four-eyed <laughs> midget? You know, Bill's 6'3", I think, 6'2". <laughs> Uh, the disparagement was total until the Hendricks brothers of Houston, uh, very prominent player agents, they brought Bill in to help them with arbitration cases, to do statistical analyses of their clients that could be presented to the arbitrator uh, when they, you know, when they, when they're going at each other. And the Hendricks brothers and their clients cleaned up, and the people on the other side of the, the <laughs> I said, hey, maybe this guy knows something. Right. And in time, you know, the, you look at the box, even the simple box scores today is filled with statistics that never would have appeared in box scores before Bill. Or I have to say, in one case before me, because of Whip. Because <laughs> of Whip, yep. Whip, Whip is, yeah, my other contribution to Major League history. Um, yeah, it, it uh, Bill, Bill changed the game because he changed the way that the game is analyzed then the way that the game is played changed because of the analyses. Uh, and we, I don't need to tell you or your listeners um, about, you know, how deep the statistical analysis departments of major league teams are now. I mean, they're, you know, scores of people. Right. They're uh, like, they, the front offices look like think tanks now. Yeah. And, 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 you know, these are really large staffs with really capable people and the number of general managers who've come out of statistical analysis, it, 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 it it's a, Radical change. Uh, pitching practices now, I think, are we're seeing that. And I think that that can be traced if you go back a few steps to the statistical revolution as well. 
Yeah, it's he's sort of you can almost put a pin on that. You can look at other you know managers. You could make the argument that Casey Stengel was one of the innovators in in relief pitching and kind of making that a, a popularizing some of that idea in his own way. But I, I'm curious because there's a lot of debate now because now you see what has come from the statistical revolution and things of that nature, and there's. There, it seems like what used to be shunned by the baseball establishment has become the baseball establishment. Now, my question to you is, based on you know just being a fan, do you think the pendulum has maybe swung a little too far in that direction? Has it overcorrected just a you know in towards that way a little bit? Well, I, I, I guess it has, but I've chosen to. I screen out the things that are, I think, are ridiculous or not interesting to me. I mean, the, 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 the most egregious examples are the broadcasters who say, "Why wow, he's only the third player in Tampa Bay Rays history <laughs> to get a double, a single, and two triples in the same week. I mean, the, the, these statistical compilations that are utterly meaningless. Right. Um, they're, you know, I uh, get, get that out. The one, the one that's more visible and has had a profound and I think negative inf- impact on the way the game is played is launch angle uh, and, 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 and uh, uh, spin rate and, and associated statistics that come out of the extraordinary accomplishment that is major league advanced media. I mean, I salute them for their ability to do this, but uh, you know, that it's, cl- it's become clear that uh, the shift means more home runs. You know, mm-hmm. you can't hit into the shift, hit over the shift. Right. How do you hit over the shift? Launch angle, change your swing to suit it. Um, and that's, to me, a not very appealing aspect of, uh, of the game today. So um, I think the statistics, uh, like anything else, can be misused. And, and the it's that first set, that's a misuse because it's idiotic. Uh, the second set, it's not... That it's misused, but but the statistics change the nature of the game, mm-hmm. right? Rather than the other way around. There was an earlier example of that. The save is a category. Jerome right. Holtzman, Chicago Sun Times, invented this category in the mid late sixties, and suddenly, not suddenly, it took a few years. I think it was after John Hiller had thirty seven or something for the Tigers. Uh, teams began to say, "Oh, we should save our best reliever for the ninth inning because," and then contracts get negotiated based on saves and people win, you know, M, uh, Cy Young awards, Willie Hernandez, 1984, because of saves. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a stupid statistic. It's not even a statistic. And, and Jerome Holson was a friend of mine and kind of a mentor of mine. And, and uh, I'm, I, I, were he around today, he'd say, you know, this is a really stupid way to organize a bullpen. <laughs> Right. Now we've learned, we've learned, you know, Tampa is, has, has been the leader in this, but, uh, you know, other teams as well as you use your bullpen in a very different way, uh, depending on situation and, 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 and score and where you are in the course of the game. Uh, it's not this automatic, let's drag out the, you know, I mean, still automatic with, you know, Araldus Chapman and we got creamed the other day and, and, yeah, right. and, uh, and a few others. But I think 10 years from now, Saves is going to be a meaningless statistic. I think it's going to be uh, surpassed by just, you know the, the the change in the nature of of the way pitchers are used um, will kind of obliterate it. Yeah, and my concern sometimes with 
some of the analytics and the statistics. And that's, I am very hesitant to speak ill of it because I think it's a great tool and, you know, in terms of, and it's wonderful for how we evaluate players in some ways. But I also am concerned just a little bit that baseball as a game is losing sight of the fact that it is an entertainment product, you know, and, and that it's supposed to be entertaining. But I, I think we, it's almost a universal agreement that, watching strikeout after strikeout after strikeout and then broken up by the occasional home run is not what we all, what what most folks have in mind. And that's not disparaging it, but I mean, you know, it's, I I think we're going to see rules changes. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know what they are, but you you of course know about the big rule change in 1969 when they lowered the mound by six inches and it totally changed the game. (laughs) It was played. Uh, you know, maybe there's another six inches to come off the mound. Maybe it's moved back a foot. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe bases are moved in a foot. I don't know. Oof. I mean, I mean that would be really radical. That but, would be something. Yeah. Um, there will be changes because the, the the strikeout rate is is horrifying. You know, and and you know what was it last year? There were more home runs than singles. Yes, I think more strikeouts yeah. than I think more strikeouts than singles. Yeah, it, 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 it's a strikeout. Well, I was about to say strikeout isn't fun to watch. If you were watching DeGrom last night, you'd well, say, wow, strikeouts are really fun to watch. <laughs> that's true. It was really extraordinary what he did. And he's not even particularly a strikeout pitcher. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, the, there will be – I mean, I know somebody in the commissioner's office pretty well placed. He said they're, they're talking about what can we do, what can we do. We can't have so many strikeouts. Right. It's, and I wonder too, sometimes like, yeah, we like Ben Lindbergh's been a big uh, proponent of moving the mound back a foot. And I think that there's something to that. I think there's something to, you know, maybe, maybe putting the robot umps in place. I think there's something to that, you know, because like the pitchers need any help right now. Right. The, the, the moving the, 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 the mound back a foot, uh, concerns me, um, because the pitcher who is through, high school, college, the minors and, and, and the major leagues has developed his curve or his slider, or his cutter breaking at a certain point. Mm-hmm. You know, his curve is going to break a foot earlier and it's going to land in the dirt before it gets to the plate. Right. Uh, they'd have to learn how to pitch again. And, and that's radical. And maybe it can happen. Maybe it can happen. But, uh, I do, I do agree. It won't happen overnight. It, 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 that would, that's a, that's it's one of those amazing. systemic changes, I think, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think when, mm-hmm. if we did things like I'm a, I'm a proponent of could not eliminating the shift, but controlling the shift. Maybe there's, mm-hmm. maybe there's zone limits where you can put defenders or like things of that nature stipulated somehow, as yeah. opposed to putting eight people on one side of the diamond. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a tough, it's tough for me for a variety of reasons to, to, you know, like Manfred has, has suggested, you know, that there have to be, three players on each side of the, uh, of second base. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know I, that to limit the way the game is played in the field is of concern to me yet. We're talking about things like moving the mound back, um, or, uh, you know, what if you went to three balls for a walk? <laughs> Man, that's, that would change pitching. Yeah. Change the game. Um, yet the players could perform exactly the way they perform. They still, you know, a strike is still a strike. A curveball still goes to 60 feet and six inches and so on and so forth. I haven't heard anybody suggest that. It's That's really radical. But if it gets that bad that there's this many strikeouts, you know. 
Yeah, and and you wonder too, like it, when we look back on it, like uh, the the lack of innings that pitchers put in compared to say, like you know, you look back at the careers of Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver and and yeah. all these pitchers. It, it, there's almost always some kind of balancing act that doesn't force the statistics so far out of the norm. Right. Usually there is, but you know we've got we've come to the point where you know that that our teams are carrying 13 pitchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In the 1950s, you carried eight or nine. In the 60s, you carried 10. 60s, 70s, 80s, you carried 10. 13 pitchers enables you to use that bullpen, uh, you know, change the pitcher, change the pitcher, change the pitcher. I mean, the Cubs bullpen this year is fantastic. And, you know, they've got five guys who are working regularly uh, and, you know, doing, doing the job. So, you know, why have your starter go more than five innings if you've got a bullpen like that yeah. uh, or more than six? So, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the entertainment, the entertainment value of the game is diminished as strategies get more sophisticated. Yeah. They're going to continue to get more sophisticated. So we ha- they can't get less sophisticated. Right. There's a progression. So rules changes will have to have to come. Yeah. Maybe it is another six inches off the mound. You know, that, that that doing that did not hurt the game. It helped the game. Yeah, it's. I tend to agree with you. There's, there's, there's almost always some kind of check or balance, or there needs to be some kind of check or balance, because I don't necessarily buy the fact that if a pitcher's already throwing 100 miles an hour, to tell Freddie Freeman, oh, just inside out the ball, beat the shift by just poking it out to left field. The, you know, you spend your whole life coming up through the game like oh pull it pull it pull it pull it now you finally get to the majors oh no just poke it the other way yeah. uh, i don't I, I i tend to agree with that that premise um so another thing is uh you know and i i, I said i wasn't gonna drill you about rotisserie but there's but i, I do have one question i want to ask sure. uh because i have myself been commissioner of my my league for i mean 20 years almost and i've never won and Neither did I. I was going to ask, have you gotten the yoo bath that you so deserve? No, no, I have not. <laughs> I've kept my hair unsticky for all this time. Uh, I, I played original rotisserie for 16 seasons, stopped playing, then started a version that some friends and I started in the early 2000s called Slow Pitch or, or AARP, you know, much simplified rules, you know, you draft your team and then you move players around during the season. You have a week for trading. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for eight years. So I've got 24 rotisserie years behind me without a pennant. Um, and I guess, I, I guess that's a distinction or I could maybe go back and, you know, play against some six-year-olds and, and <laughs> teach them a, a thing or two and be like the 1944 Browns and finally win one. But, there you go. But, you know, there's, uh, there was a profile of me that somebody wrote, about four or five years ago, and said like that Ogren never winning his rotisserie league was like Hugh Hefner never getting laid. <laughs> that's man. That's that's. It, did that? How did that, that? Did that feel on the nose when you heard it, or how did that? <laughs> um, that that's much. That would be much sadder. <laughs> 
least for Hester. Yeah. Right. It, you know, it, it's, it, it is, it, it's it sort of your, the story of the league and the, and your, and your story in particular, you know, what was it that, uh, I forget that someone did say in the Ken Burns thing and it always just stuck with me. It's like, they said, there's a lot more Mets than Yankees and all of us, the game, there's a lot more losing than winning yeah. in, in general. And mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, you hear so much. You only hear from the winners, right? It's like there's so much of that. And I, I feel for you on that level because I'm the I'm the guy that's driving the interest in the league. I'm I'm keeping the things together, refreshing stuff to keep it, people enrolled. Uh, but I've never won. And uh, yeah. I feel like I feel like I just like relate on that level. <laughs> You've been playing how long? Uh, about 20 years. OK, so you my record stands in front of you. Yes. <laughs> you can go 26 years without winning. Yes, that's right. You hear that, J- Jesse Winker will just uh, stop hitting for a while, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, I need a couple IL stints. I will I will tell you something. Jesse Winker will stop hitting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You think so? <laughs> you th- I got you on record here. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm on record uh, that uh, he's not going to hit 300 this year. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, it's a long season. I think people people forget how long this season's going to be compared to what we're used to here. That's true. And, and uh, you know, there are only, right now, only five players in the National League hitting over 300. Uh, one of them at 301 and one of them at 304. Seven in the American League. Um, hitting for average is really, really tough. In yeah. Game. Well, look at uh, Yasmani Grandal. He's batting like 160, but his on base percentage is like f- close to 400, if not over. Yeah, that I admire. I really, <laughs> I mean, that's back to Gene Tennis. You know, the, the 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 player who understands that walks, as they we used to tell us in little league, a walk is as good as a hit. Well, it's not quite as good, but it's pretty damn good. Right. Um, stupidest thing I ever heard a manager say, Dusty Baker, when he was uh, managing at, with the Nats and. No, maybe it was at the Reds. Yeah, I guess it was the Reds. He said, ah, walks are overrated. You know, they just clog up the bases. <laughs> really? Yeah, runs are overrated. They just mess up home. Play. I know. They just put crooked numbers on the scoreboard. <laughs> the um, the One of the things that I think, because you touched on it a little bit too, you know, and we we talked about it with the, the, just the way the game is played today. The walks, Do you? what do you think – what do you think will ultimately be the next uh, thing that we do you think that a shift towards the pitching is going to continue or do you think that we're going to there is going to be some sort of equalizer, some sort of check like we talked about on how the game is played today? And what do you well, think that the might first be? first check will be the DH coming to the National League, which I hate the idea, but it's inevitable. I expect it will be next year or the year after that. Mm-hmm. Um the automatic home plate umpire. I think that, that, that mm-hmm. that's a change that is, that, that is, that is coming as well. Uh, <clears throat> the end of the starting pitcher has already arrived or not the end of, but the diminished role of the starting pitcher. Um, you know, the game changes all the time. All, and usually, usually if, if it favors the, the offense, then pitching and defense make adjustments to it and vice versa. But this seems not to be happening uh, this time, as it didn't happen in the late 60s. You know, Gibson had a 112 ERA in 1967, right. I mm-hmm. believe. Uh, McLean won 31 games in 68. You know, there were pitchers who were just so, I mean, Koufax, utterly dominant. And then they changed the rules. So eh, the offense was back in the game. Right. 
And uh, yeah, we'll still, we may see, I don't know if we'll see seasons like that, you know, ever again, I, at least not in, in tandem. Well, I mean, you know, DeGrom, it's just, you know, his ERA is under 0.6 now and his whip is just barely over 0.6. I've never seen sustained pitching like this. Never. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, so there are some people who say that, you know, the greatest rivalry in baseball today is DeGrom versus the Mets um, <laughs> because of their inability to hit. You know, yesterday they won, was it 3-2 the final score? And he knocked in yep. two of the runs. Yeah. It's just, you know, they, can't, they don't do it for him. He's really. driven in more runs than he's allowed this year. Like that's yeah, you know, I saw that uh, my son pointed out that stat to me, and I said, "Holy cow, that's really amazing!" And then I, Otani this year has driven in more runs than he's allowed in his entire four-year career. <laughs> it it circles back forty-five right? runs, and, and he's knocked in forty-five runs. And well, he did have he missed a year, but since two thousand eighteen, he's allowed forty-one. It's really something. We're never, yeah, we're we're never gonna see that again. Um, so no. So uh, so this is where I make the most random pivot in this podcast history. Um, I want to talk very briefly about your about your book, your your 2019 book, and I just want to I want to lead you in with something I heard in an interview, and then use that as a place for you to tell us, fill us in on what the book's about. In the 1750s, a Philadelphia newspaper editor wrote about how the Germans were coming to the Pennsylvania colony and they would destroy it. Tell us who wrote that and why it ties deeply into the guarded gate. Well, he went on beyond that uh, with with many more disparaging uh, comments about about the Germans. And that was Ben Franklin uh, who wrote it. And uh, I think what that goes to establish is that anti-immigrant feeling has always been with us. And it goes in cycles. It's usually related to economic cycles. Uh, boom times, we're more open to, econo- to, to immigrants because we need them to do jobs uh, than we are in, in hard times. But you can see it's like a sine wave that moves through American history. And my book is about a particular period when the huge immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe uh, really dominated 19, from 1890 to 1924. Um, and the efforts made at the time to stop it, particularly of the Eastern European Jews and the Southern Italians. Uh, and they, the, the means that was used to stop it was the, the so-called science of eugenics. And when that was picked up as, as proof that we need to change, that's when that's what brought in the most restrictive immigration law in American history in 1924, which was in place for 41 years. And that was really, really restrictive and discriminatory against Eastern and Southern Europeans, Asians, Africans, Latin Americans. It was good to Northern Europeans. Uh, that's all. And um, decisions were made about immigration and arguments were for were put forth based on the presumed genetic inferiority of racial and ethnic and national groups, not individuals, not we want to keep him out because he's stupid or her out because she's blind and deaf and won't be able to join the workforce in a productive way. I'm I'm not, don't mean to disparage anybody blind and deaf. I don't see it as that kind of a handicap, but at the time, blind blind people could not get into the country before uh, during in the early 20th century and various people with other particularly congenital ailments. But when you take that discrimination, that determination, rather, that, you know, 
we need people who are able-bodied uh, and able-minded and apply it to an entire nation of people, entire right. ethnic group. Uh, that's that's the was the radical change, and that was what was in place at least for four years of the preceding admi- uh, presidential administration. It was specifically aimed at Latin Americans and Muslims. Keep them out, not keep out the bad Latin Americans or the bad Muslims or the unproductive ones, but keep them out as a group. And uh, that's a very ugly aspect of American history. It's the it's uh, eugenics. It's the yeah, it's eugenics, and 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 a total misreading. Even you know, there, there's some scientific basis in eugenics as applied to individuals. It's really genetics. Two tall people will have a tall child. Uh, is that you know? When it becomes eugenic, is let's not let short people marry each other. Right. Um, but the, the genetic background, uh, uh, it, you know, is certainly is certainly valid in in, in many ways. Um, yeah, and it, it's not it's not the way this country was built, and nor is it the way that this country is going to maintain itself. Yeah. Uh, to make that kind of a gross judgment. It really, it really, it it flies in the face of the very core concepts of yeah. of the country. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and- no, I'm, I'm not saying that the border should be wide open. I don't, I don't think that's the case. But what, what we operated under, beginning with the change of the law in 1965, was a lottery system with a, a, a cap. The number, you know, 575,000 immigrants can come in this year. Anybody is welcome. Just you have to win the lottery. Seems reasonable. Yeah, it's it, it it's interesting because when you talk about like it, it really is, it's a scientific racism. You know, it's, it's, that the, was, that's the term for it. Yeah. yeah. It, and, and, and that's, and, go ahead. Sorry. Science, 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 scientific. That was the, the, uh, the bogus, uh, um, term that gave it the appearance of credibility. Right. It, it's, it's a term so misused and yeah. so over overused. And we see it now too, in the pandemic, we see the, the over the misuse of terms like science and, you know, it, it becomes subjective, right? It's whatever your echo chamber is, thinks yeah. is, yeah. thinks what is correct want. at yeah. that moment. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a fascinating concept. I am f- severely underqualified to to go much, to go deep into it, but I uh, I I think it's something that it, it's an it's one of those ugly truths. It's one of those things that we don't wrestle we don't wrestle with enough. I think in this country, I don't yeah, think. I, yeah, I think it's it, I, what I learned in researching and writing that book, the Guarded Gate, and and. In talking about it in the you know two and a half years since it was published, it's a very unhappy reality, unprovable, but I'm convinced of it, that we all need somebody to look down on, that we define ourselves by being better than somebody else. And that can be an individual or it can be a racial group or an ethnic group or it can be a political party. Uh, and it just shows up in every damn culture in, in history. And you always wonder what, you know, there was a time in this country um, when the Chinese immigrants were at the very bottom, they were not eligible for citizenship at mm-hmm. all. Uh, you know, and then, you know, the, the Eastern European Jews, you know, they were at the bottom, you know, the people who were that they're inferior. I therefore am superior. Um, but, but those groups show that, you know, these things are not, they're not standard. What is standard is, is, is the, the species wish 
to have somebody beneath oneself. And that, that applies, unfortunately, so much. And it, and it's very true. It's that natural competitive nature that is so uniquely human. I mean, I wouldn't even say it's uniquely American, but it seems a little more accentuated sometimes. Oh, no, no, no. It, it, it's it's human. It's around the world. There's mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe somebody listening can tell me of a culture that doesn't act this way, but right. I, I've never encountered it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, one of, it's an unfortunate universal truth. Uh, well, uh, Dan, I very much appreciate your time and, uh, I'm very grateful to have you on the show, the show this time. Well, this was great. Thank you for asking me. And I hope, uh, <clears throat> your listeners find it interesting. I hope they do. They better. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Man.